Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Nick Eberstadt, the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy here at AEI, and uh, welcome to our American Enterprise Institute headquarters. Welcome as well to our television audience and to online viewers. It is a spectacular late summer day in Washington, D.C., and I am not just referring to the weather. Uh, Today is a landmark day because we have the privilege here of launching a remarkable report. North Korea's Organization and Guidance Department, The Control Tower of Human Rights Denial by Robert M. Collins. Those of you who know Bob Collins understand already why this is such a big deal. Uh, Those of you who don't yet know him are going to be in for a real treat. In East Asia, there is this convention of designating certain accomplished men and women as living treasures. If we had that in America, for people following North Korea, Bob would be the number one living treasure because there is no one in the United States, or I would dare say no one outside of the borders of the world's largest open-air prison camp who understands decision-making and political control as well as Robert M. Collins. We have a lot of people in this town who have opinions on North Korea. Not all of them deserve to have opinions on North Korea, however. Uh, And if you were going to do a quick test on pundits about whether they should be listened to in uh, explaining how North Korea works, the shibboleth would be to ask them about the organization and guidance department. If they don't know what that is, you might want to move on to the next pundit. Um, This book has been uh, produced by a remarkable little organization called the U.S. Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. I'm honored to be associated with this. We have some of the board members for HRNK here as well. We also have the extraordinary honor of uh, attendance by Mr. Chi Sung Ho. You may recall him from the uh, President's 2018 State of the Union Address. He's one of the great champions of freedom for the oppressed population of North Korea. You will be hearing from him in due course. However, before we get to the main event, I'd like to introduce the executive director of HRNK, Mr. Greg Scarlatu, responsible for this report and the good work that HRNK does. Greg, please come up. 
Nick, thank you very much for the very kind introduction. Uh, I would like to thank you and AEI for graciously hosting this event. This is the, f the third time AEI is hosting the release of a Bob Collins report after Songbun in Pyongyang Republic. Uh, HRNK is America's only organization dedicated 100% to researching, investigating, and reporting on the human rights situation in uh, North Korea. Um, I'm delighted that our board co-chair emeritus, Roberta Cohen, is with us today. Also, uh, three of our board members are sitting on the panel. Of course, uh, Nick Eberstadt will moderate um, the panel today, and um, also uh, David Maxwell. Very happy to see him here today. Um, North Korea's Organization and Guidance Department the Control Tower of Human Rights Denial is the latest installment in a series of reports by Robert Collins, all aimed to deconstruct and explain the DNA of North Korea's Kim regime and its policy of human rights denial. After Marked for Life, Songbun, North Korea's social classification system, Pyongyang Republic, North Korea's capital of human rights denial, from cradle to grave the path of North Korean innocence and denied from the start human rights at the local level in North Korea. This report is Bob's fifth, and it's his true opus magnum. This report gives a full measure of the depth and breadth of the author's knowledge and analysis Acquired over many decades spent as a North Korea expert, strategist, and human rights scholar. As Bob Collins puts it, Pyongyang is the capital of the Kim family regime's power, and the organization and guidance department, the OGD, is North Korea's citadel of political terror. In order to understand and address North Korea's human rights violations now and in the future, one must understand what Robert Collins describes as the Pyongyang OGD nexus of human rights denial. We are often told you human rights organizations should deal with North Korea as is, not as you would like it to be. Well, this is it, North Korea as is. And Bob Collins explains how the regime functions. Bob Collins explains the regime dynamics. Um, it is a very important mission for me today to acknowledge those who have contributed to this terrific report. Of course, for the full credit goes to the author. Uh, we've also had a wonderful board review subcommittee, Roberta Cohen, John Dupre, Nick Eberstadt, David Maxwell, uh, Professor Jerome Cohen of New York University, all of them board members. Rosa Park uh, worked on the design, editing, and layout of the report, Raymond Ha, Currently at Stanford on the West Coast is our editorial consultant. Amanda Mortwedo, HRNK human rights attorney, uh, is the one who authored the executive summary. And of course, our wonderful interns, Michelle Helen Reyes, who designed all the charts and tables. Dabin Song, Michelle Beltrand, assisted with the design of the cover. Most importantly, full credit must go to the Collins family, especially Mrs. Kim Chung Soo Collins. They have been so extraordinarily supportive of Bob and his work. Uh, I have the, the privilege of uh, knowing that a very special guest has joined us today. Lieutenant General Raymond Ayers, uh, United States Marine Corps, has been a dear, close friend of Bob's for almost a quarter century now. Lieutenant General Ayers and Mrs. Ayers uh, drove all the way from New York City to attend today's event. 
Uh, Lieutenant General Ayers would be extraordinarily honored if you accepted to give some brief remarks before we proceed with Bob's presentation. Thank you, sir. Uh, first, I'd like to thank HRNK and AEI for uh, hosting the event and for inviting me to say a few words. When I learned that I was going to be assigned as the CJ-5 in Korea, the first thing I did was call my friend Major General Ray Smith, who had previously held that position, and I asked him what I needed to know. His answer was simple. Listen to Bob Collins. When I got to Korea, I took Bob out of the staff job he was in and made him my advisor, my right-hand man. That was more than two decades ago, and it turned out that not only did I get the benefit of Bob's forward-thinking insights on North Korea, I also got the services of another exceptionally capable co-thinker of his, Dave Maxwell. Dave really belonged to the CJ3, but Bob and I considered him part of our team, so we basically just stole him for two years. And that was to everyone's advantage, believe me. Their work on, let's just call it, instability contingencies in North Korea was light years ahead of the rest of the U.S. government. A plan like 5029 had never been written before, and to my knowledge, has not been duplicated in any part of the world since then under U.S. auspices. Bob's work on this OGD report is another example of that groundbreaking thinking. It's also the result of Bob's total fluence in Korean, especially North Korean dialects, his detailed research of primary resource material, and his personal interviews with North Korean defectors, certainly more interviews than any other American has conducted. The OGD report will undoubtedly contribute to our government's understanding of how decision-making within the Kim regime is channeled and controlled by the regime's dictatorial ruler. The report demonstrates exactly who controls and implements North Korean human rights denial policies and practices. This insight is almost as important, in my opinion, as the instability work of more than 20 years ago. I know Bob will have more reports coming out through HRNK, and I look forward to learning from those as well. So in conclusion, I have only one piece of advice for all of you. Listen to Bob Collins. We know the extraordinarily important role that deterrence has played in the Korean Peninsula. We know why there is an open and flourishing and free society in the South. And that is precisely because deterrence has worked so far. So thank you and all of your comrades and colleagues for your service. Uh, Bob, the floor is yours. Take it away. We're looking forward to this. Well, first of all, thank you to uh, Nick Eberstad and AEI for hosting this event. Um, also, thank you very much to uh, the director for HR&K, who, whose encouragement uh, and patience enabled this uh, product to be produced and, uh, and led to this event uh, taking place. I'm very, very grateful for that. The subject. The Organization and Guidance Department runs North Korea. Now, not a lot of people know that. Whether, whether they are Korean or even North Korean or, or from any other country, because it's a very secretive organization. And the Supreme Leader, Kim Jong-un, and his father and his grandfather used this organization to ensure that whatever decisions they made, whatever guidance they gave, 
was heard by everybody that could possibly contribute to the goals and objectives of the dictatorial regime. <clears throat> now, if you ask the vast majority, vast, vast majority of the 32,000 defectors uh, or escapees that have come out of North Korea and have now live in, in uh, South Korea, the, the vast majority of them have no idea what it is. You, you <laughs> virtually have to live in Pyongyang to have some sort of understanding um, of uh, what this organization is. Its purpose is to ensure that the regime is secure, that the supreme leader is secure, and they do so by controlling every aspect of everybody's lives in North Korea. They control every institution in North Korea. They control all the leaders in North Korea, the government leaders, the party leaders, the military leaders. Um, they control all of them. And so it's, it's as if the personnel department of North Korea was the most powerful organization uh, in, that, in that state. And that's true. It is. Because politically, you could be the lowest man in, in the organization guys department, and state ministers and military four stars will bow to you because you have so much influence on their careers. Um, and so in, in this manner, they're able to control not only those type of leaders, but down all the way to the mine workers, those that work in the agricultural fields. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are, you are ultimately controlled by the OGD, either directly or indirectly. The process for this control begins with ideology. This ideology, which is basically focused on the 10 great principles of monolithic ideology, begins when you are a baby in the, in the cradle because your parents are singing lullabies that are based off of this, I'll call TPMI, 10 Principles of Monolithic Ideology. <clears throat> and, it go, and it goes through indoctrination sessions that you have to endure from school all the way till the day you die. That, is, that applies to everybody. No matter what your rank, no matter what your low position might be in society, everybody has to go through this on a daily basis. And ideology is the starting point. The practice that ensures that you remain humble and loyal is called Sengwal Chonghua, which is a lifestyle self-critique. Every week, farmers every three days and entertainers every two days, because they're allowed to be a little um, more open about what they think, they have to go through this process and confess what they have done wrong or what they have done that's disloyal to the supreme leader. And that's the focus. What, what is your relationship with the supreme leader? That's what you talk about. And you have, to talk, you have to talk about negative. You can't get up there and say, I did this to, to help the supreme leader and brag about yourself. That's not what they want out of those critiques. You have to, you have to confess what it is that you did wrong. Now, most of individuals will not confess what they really did wrong. They make up some stories about, oh, I was late to work three times this week or something of that nature, or I smoked too much or whatever. But people do find out what you, what you do wrong because not only do you have to self-confess, but the, when you're done self-confessing, others get up and, and address and criticize you. All this is recorded, and it goes channels up through institutions and geographical uh, organizations. There's a... Um, up to, through the OGD, into its party life guidance section, where those records are kept. So there's a solid record of how you have performed 
in relation to your loyalty to the Supreme Leader, your loyalty to the party, and what you have done successfully to be a good citizen under the Kim regime. The control um, is also uh, magnified by surveillance. <coughs> if you work in an institution in Pyongyang, let's just call it uh, the Ministry of State Security. Um, there's a headquarters, obviously, that is in Pyongyang, and across the street from the headquarters is the housing unit for everybody that works there and their families. It's surrounded by a fence. There's one entrance in and out, and this is the same for every institution in, in, in uh, North Korea. Uh, you are assigned to your housing. You have to stay there. So surveillance happens not only by the individual who's at the gate and writes down everything every time you come in, every time you go out, every time you get a visitor, but it also organized how um, uh, telephones are monitored and whatnot. It's much easier that way. And they keep track on you, and the records, um, uh, they have what is called an inmin banjang, or a neighborhood unit chief who goes around and ensures that you're attending the right things to do and keeps a record of it. And all this ends up into the party life guidance section files. And so of the 25 million people, the only person that is exempt from those files, you can guess it, is the supreme leader. And so that's how they can control uh, everything that happens. Now, I have to say that there is some weak points to the OGD, and this is very important. It is very corrupt. Everybody that got into the OGD did there by a dog-eat-dog -dog attempt to get higher within the process. Of course, you had to have some sort of connection to get there in the first place, uh, usually family members, or you come from a family that was associated with the anti-Japanese partisans um, during, uh, 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 during the 30s and early 40s, or your father did well in the uh, Korean War. Um, the process is all about th those connections. But once you get into the OGD, you know you have made it, but you have to work really hard in controlling others. And so these individuals, and they have what we call minor leagues, people, uh, representatives from the OGD that are down at the provincial, city, and county level that, that organize this, this material that they collect on the individual people. All this is, again, funneled back up to the party life guidance section. In the military, um, the general political bureau does the same thing. That's the political officers that are assigned to every command and, and to every commander, and they, do, they serve the same function. The control objective is not only serving the supreme leader's security and the regime's security. It is about denying human rights ultimately. Any thought that we have in terms of what a human right is is absolutely eliminated by the processes that I just described. The surveillance aims at that, the ideology aims at that, the saying, well, self-critique is aimed at that. All of that is designed to ensure that you can't observe any particular right as we understand it in the West. It's all about just the loyalty and serving the supreme leader. And so the OGD not only controls what you're supposed to think, it controls where you live. It controls what your job is. It controls anything that's associated with an opportunity through a privilege penalty approach to uh, whatever you do. And so when you confess that you have done something wrong you know, at the factory, then you're, you're given some sort of punishment. Now that might be some extra work and certainly some extra study from, with the propaganda and agitation officer that's assigned to your particular institution 
And if, if that, that's all that happens, then you're lucky. But if you, you do something serious, then it's usually you're off to some sort of labor camp. The more serious of these, obviously, is political prison camps, and HRK does a marvelous job at, at re making reports that are associated with these political prison camps. The political prison camps ultimately are done with, uh, designed to ensure that the, those perceived as the greatest enemies are, are the ones that end up in these political prison camps. That's a subject for another time. They're miserable, and you can go on the HRK website and publications, and you can download a number of these reports that cover this, this uh, subject very well. But that is at the top end of the penalty structure in this privilege penalty dynamic that they use to, to, control, to control everybody. The privilege is promotion, better housing, better food, uh, being able to live in Pyongyang. Pyongyang citizens actually have a different ID card than the rest of the citizens of the country. It's to control access to Pyongyang. They don't want people not assigned to Pyongyang to come into Pyongyang unless there's a specific purpose and then they have to get permission from the police. And even in Pyongyang, they have a breakdown of the elite, the second level elite and then the under elite, so to speak. But if you're in Pyongyang, you're there for a purpose, and the purposes are all controlled by the policies and practices and strategy of the Organization and Guidance Department. Now, the structure of the Organization and Guidance Department is they have a director. For a long time, it was, it was, the seat was left empty, which means that automatically the supreme leader was, was the, uh, was the, held the director position, and this started with uh, Kim Jong-il when he became the director under his father, Kim Il-sung, back in 1973. Formally, for the first time in 2017, it was then given to Che Yong-hae, who had it for little less than two years. Today, it's held by Yim Man-gon, who might be the most unique person within political structure of North Korea other than Supreme Leader, because he's the only person who has had all that control in the OGD, and then previous to that, he controlled all of the WMD projects in North Korea, including the nukes, missiles, and everything else. So that's a very powerful man that... that uh, Essentially, we could call him number two, but there really isn't any room for number two. And even the OGD and, um, and all of the intelligence agencies, security agencies, ensure that there's, nobody considers themselves a number two. Um, and so the, the structure of the OGD has a department director, then they have what is called a first vice director, and that's anywhere from three to five people who cover responsibility of various elements of society. For instance, there will be one that's in charge of the military director. There will be another one in charge of the regional director. There will be another one in charge of the <coughs> government agencies and economic enterprises. Um, and then under them is a series of, of vice directors who have specifics. And then there's approximately 50 of those within the OGD. These are all very, very powerful people. Um, and like I said before, if, if you're a minister and you know what's good for you, you bow in front of these guys no matter what the age difference, no matter what the rank difference um, because it's very important to your future. Failure to do so, for instance, a few years ago, a, the four-star that was in charge of the, who was the chief of the general staff, or the, their version of our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, fell asleep during a speech by Kim Jong-un. Well, as, as you probably know, he was blasted away by a ZPU-4 with uh, uh, blasted literally to smithereens. That kind of rudeness gets you, uh, you know, a very violent death. And the OGD under, under, the OGD under Kim Jong-un, to wrap this up, is, is capable of not only throwing you into a political prison camp, it is ca capable of conducting 
investigations into what your behavior was that, and that will ultimately lead to your execution. And Kim Jong-un has executed far more than his father did. Not quite as many as his grandfather did, but at any rate, to wrap this up, the OGD controls everything. The government doesn't control anything. They are the lapdogs of the OGD. The lapdogs of the party, and the party is the center of, the OGD is the party center. For our government and military leaders, when they are looking to, inter, to exchange negotiations with, with the North Korean representatives, the guy, that they are, the guy or woman that they are talking to is usually just the front person. The person that's controlling them is sitting on the back bench, which is something that our government negotiators have never realized. The people that are in charge are never the people that are up there front and negotiating with you. They're the people behind them. And that's very important because ultimately, like I said before, control is the essential element of regime security. And the, the, remember that whoever our government negotiations are dealing with in North Korea, that person has to go through all of those control systems that I mentioned, the surveillance, the self-critique, the uh, ideology study. They have to go through all of that every time. And so with that, I think I'll end my remarks. Uh, thank you for that splendid summary of your study. Uh, I'd like to invite our discussants up on stage now. Marcus Garlauskas of the U.S. government, David Maxwell of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. And I'd like to ask each of you to offer your remarks for discussion. Marcus? I'll tell you that uh, was very hard to top, Bob. <laughs> You're a tough act to follow, as always. <laughs> So as, uh, as Nick has noted, uh, I am a U.S. government official, but I want to emphasize that I'm here today in a personal capacity uh, and that all my comments today are going to represent just my personal views and don't reflect the views of any government organization. Uh, and also, to be fair, Nick, there may be some questions that you asked me during the discussion that I'm not going to be able to answer. So I've known Bob for uh, nearly two decades. Uh, he and I served in Korea in the early 2000s when I really uh, first came to appreciate his tremendous depth of knowledge on North Korea, which you just saw uh, in evidence. So later, uh, as you can see from my bio, I became his successor. I want to emphasize, use the word successor, not replacement, uh, as the, uh, the chief of strategy at Combined Forces Command. So as I said, Bob is a, a tough act to follow. So uh, having had the advantage of reading the advanced copy, um, and, I, and I know a lot of you are already starting to thumb through your copies, I, I have some additional thoughts and some things I'd like to emphasize beyond what was uh, in Bob's presentation. So, so first of all, I think Bob really makes a, a compelling case that the OGD essentially runs North Korea on behalf of the leader uh, through the mechanism of controlling the, the, the party cadres. So in essence, the OGD is this tiny sliver that runs the 13% that really runs uh, the country. Now, Section 5, which Bob didn't talk about in his remarks, I think is really uh, helpful in a new contribution to the, to the study of the, the, the structure of the North Korean regime because it lays out the, uh, a case-by-case -case comparison um, to the Soviet Union uh, and Chinese Communist Party structures and the, and the equivalent structures. And it really underscores the idea that this uh, OGD structure is something that is in actuality and practice unique and much more influential than it may appear just looking at a line and block diagram. And I found this comparative analysis, again, to be one of the areas that was most helpful and really did the most to advance our, our understanding of, uh, of North Korea. Uh, another thing that really comes across in Bob's account and, and in his remarks, but I think is worth doubling down on, is the OGD's omnipresence uh, in life. 
um, in North Korea. As he lays out in sections 9 and 10, uh, the OGD, though it's working from the shadows, really exerts enormous influence at, at all levels, and I think Bob very effectively uh, lays out the, the multi-layered uh, approach that the, the OGD takes um, that appears designed uh, to me not just to ensure that senior leader guidance is carried out throughout North Korea and not just in Pyongyang, but also that the higher echelons are immediately aware when guidance is not being followed with, of course, consequences to follow. And so in addition to those elements that I really recommend that, that, uh, that you take a close look at when you read the piece, I want to emphasize two other must-read uh, sections. Number one, section eight on the party military relations I personally found uh, fascinating, uh, particularly given our history and, and the history of our, our special guest here today in dealing with the North Korean threat. I think Everyone who's involved in planning, training, or exercising to deal with North Korea needs to read, at the very minimum, Section 8. They should read the whole thing, but at the very minimum, they should read Section 8 on party military relations. And I, I think Bob very effectively hammers home that the KPA, the Korean People's Army, is the military arm of the Korean Workers' Party, not of the North Korean state. Uh, and then, of course, the key role that the OGD plays in controlling uh, the military. But that having been said, uh, the most interesting part of this report to me is someone who's been very focused on the future of the Korean Peninsula was section 13, the very lucky number you chose for that section, or that an editor chose, the future of the ODD. It's a very brief, but it's a very compelling analysis. Again, I recommend everyone read the whole report, but if I had to recommend to the average reader only one section, it would be this one. Uh, wherever the North Korean regime goes, I think Bob is absolutely right that the OGD will be leading and directing the way. Uh, hence the importance of understanding the OGD to understanding the regime's future and its behavior in crisis or contingencies, as the general alluded to. Um, but I'll add, it, it included, Bob, to be fair, the only point of disagreement that I think you and I uh, have on, on this issue, or at least the way it's de depicted in, in your writing, that I feel I gotta, I've got to raise for the group here. Um, so in, in Section 13, you say the Kim regime's structure and function is anything but flexible. Bob, I respectfully disagree. Um, it, it has some rigidity to it, but I think the potential for uh, Kim Jong-un to uh, direct the regime to ruthly, ruthlessly reorganize and to adapt without any real checks and balances on his power, um, I think that's quite real, uh, as was demonstrated as we saw in the rapid consolidation of power um, in his fir first couple years after his father's death. Um, and so you laid this out very effectively, um, the way that the KWP governing structures and processes uh, adapted under, under Kim Jong-un. And then, of course, he made this fateful decision to retain and utilize the OGD during a relatively tumultuous period um, in a very successful way. And so this has given him, I think, a very powerful tool that if he chooses to rapidly reshape and redirect the rest of the KDP, uh, KWP, he could do so on very short notice if, if he wanted to. Um, so, so again, only one very small nuanced point of disagreement. Uh, uh, an excellent report, and, uh, and I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Nick. Uh, and uh, thank you to Greg, uh, the committee, AEI, HRNK, uh, and for the general's remarks. You know, if you only gave me uh, 15 seconds to, uh, uh, to make my remarks, I'd, I'd say two things. First, what General Ayers said, and what did he say? Listen to Bob. <laughs> and I think that uh, Bob's remarks uh, uh, clearly prove the general's point, and I think that uh, if you haven't read the report, just listening to Bob's remarks, you got a tremendous education, uh, and so I commend the report to you. Let, let me just give you my, my summarized views here. You know, obviously we've heard you know, what the organization and guidance department is. You know, from a military perspective, uh, it is the center of gravity uh, for the regime's monolithic control of uh, all of North Korea. 
You know, it controls every aspect of North Korean society, from the political system to the economy, from ideology and propaganda to national security. At its most basic level, uh, it is the key uh, instrument of power that denies human rights of the Korean people living in the North in order to ensure the survival of the Kim family regime and that the Kim family regime remains in power. Understanding the mission, the structure, and processes of the OGD is absolutely necessary uh, for developing plans, policies, and strategies for the future of the Korean Peninsula uh, and beyond the Kim family regime. Uncoupling this organization from the Korean people is critical to achieving freedom uh, in the North uh, and for the eventual unification of the Korean Peninsula. And there's no comparable report or study uh, that provides this level of detail and value to anyone who is concerned with the outcome in, in Korea. And as I've said, and I will continue to say, uh, this is a seminal work. Now, for me, as a former military planner, I ask myself when reading reports such as this, how can I apply it? Uh, how can I internalize this report uh, and, you know, to help develop plans, policies, and strategies to achieve U.S. strategic objectives? So I'm going to offer one anecdote, and then, like Marcus, I'm going to focus on Chapter 13. <clears throat> the importance of this report is that it identifies the cancer that exists in North Korea. The cancerous OGD has infiltrated, damaged, corrupted, and taken over every aspect of every cell that makes up the body of North Korea. And this cancer is responsible for the denial of human rights to the Korean people in the North, and it keeps the, the Kim family regime in power. But from this report, we have the most complete understanding of the mission, organization, and structure, and methods and processes it employs to control North Korea for the regime. And this is very important. Uh, I would compare the OGD uh, in, uh, to the Ba'athists in Iraq, though the OGT, OGD is far worse than anything we saw in Iraq. Uh, when we went to Iraq, we intuitively knew the Ba'athists were bad, uh, but we did not really know the organization. Uh, it, too, was like a cancer in Iraqi society. But when faced with cancer, there are only two treatments. One is chemotherapy and radiation, uh, and the other is precise surgery to excise the cancer. In Iraq, we went all in on chemotherapy and radiation uh, to try to eradicate it, but this treatment has broad effects on the cells uh, surrounding it. And in the case of Iraq, our treatment of the Ba'athist cancer made things worse for the people. Now, in the case of North Korea, uh, this report gives us the knowledge to conduct precise surgery uh, to remove the cancer of the OGD while doing the least amount of harm. Uh, this understanding can help craft the policies and plans that will help decouple the Korean people in the North from the OGD as well as drive such things as transitional justice planning. Uh, whatever happens in the North, whether it's war, regime collapse, internal regime replacement, or even peaceful unification, let's hope for the best, uh, it will be more complex than anything South Korea and the U.S. experienced in Iraq. Yes, South Korea was in Iraq. Uh, but this report... Uh, it gives the Rock us alliance a chance to be better prepared to create conditions that can reduce suffering uh, and bring about a transition to a unified peninsula and liberate the oppressed people of the North. Now I want to focus on Chapter 13. No, not the bankruptcy kind. Uh, though if we exert enough unrelenting pressure on the regime, perhaps we can bankrupt it. Bankrupt it. I want to start with a quote from the opening paragraph of Chapter 13 that explains both the resilience of the guerrilla dynasty in Gulag State, that is North Korea, and how we must think about the future of the, Korea, uh, the Korean Peninsula. 
freeing the Korean people living in the north and solving the Korea question, which is the unnatural division of the Korean peninsula and ultimately the establishment of a united Republic of Korea, U-R-O-K or U-R-O-K. So Bob writes, though the regime is in its eighth decade, it seems unlikely that a group of anti-Japanese partisans could sustain such a dynamic rule over that period of time. However, by the assessment of the Seoul-based Korean Institute for National Unification, the reason the regime remains relatively stable is the prescribed obligations demanded by the Korean Workers' Party of every institution and citizen. To that effect, party organizational life, institutional organization, required revolutionary study, and self-criticism sessions keep the North Korean regime afloat. Those policies and practices by, overseen by the OGD create the conditions for human rights denial. This chapter leads me to ask the question I often ask the policymakers and strategists. What would we do right now if we learned that Kim Jong-un was dead? You know, usually we say there's no succession mechanism you know, other than a designated heir. And if one has not been designated, uh, no one can say for sure what will happen and, uh, and will remain in the condition that has influenced us for decades on the Korean Peninsula, which I would call strategic paralysis, or more precisely, strategic planning paralysis, because of the unknown, and unknown of what may happen next. But it doesn't have to be that way. Chapter 13 provides us with some possibilities. It lays out various scenarios that could bring down the regime, from war, coup, assassinations, natural disasters, etc. Chapter 13 opens up the possibilities of what might happen. If I were a planner today, I would take these scenarios and analyze them in relation to the first 12 chapters or sections of the report. Uh, since I've called the OGD the center of gravity for keeping the Kim family regime in power, it will be necessary to eradicate this cancerous tumor from the Korean people and all institutions that remain in every scenario that might occur in North Korea. Now, this report provides us with the knowledge necessary to move from strategic planning paralysis to anticipatory planning. And nowhere have I seen written any possible succession process. You know, as an example, if I were to take the list of possible successors to Kim, uh, you know, names named in, in this report, and ask what policies does the South and the ROC-US alliance need to have in place now to address these possible successors? You know, how do we influence them uh, so that they can have the opportunity to make the right decision in a crisis that will benefit the Korean people living in the North and uh, the ROC-US alliance should a crisis occur. Now, I could go on uh, and on and on because this is such a great report. Uh, but to conclude, uh, this report makes one of the most significant contributions to planning for the future of the Korean Peninsula. I commend it to the public, to scholars, to practitioners who need to understand the nature of the Kim family regime uh, to prepare to answer the Korea question and to help free the oppressed people, Korean people living in the North. And uh, in the discussion, I would offer uh, uh, and, and ask a question, and everyone should think about this, uh, but I would ask Bob, uh, you know, what would you like to see planners, policymakers, and strategists do with your seminal work? And, and actually, I have a second question. What advice uh, do you have for planners, policymakers, and strategists? Uh, you know, my answer, of course, is listen to Bob. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Bob, you've got some uh, questions and comments from the discussants. Would you care to respond or sure. offer your own comments? Sure. I'd be glad to. Thank you. Marcus, I think you're right. Certainly, if anything is going to be flexible, it's going to have to start in terms of policy and practices 
to even strategy, it's going to have to start with the OGD. Otherwise, there's no mechanism to move institutions to the left or the right with any efficiency whatsoever. As a matter of fact, um, the OGD would probably first oppose it if there wasn't if they weren't involved. So I, I think that's a good point. Dave, uh, Dave talked about the center of gravity. The term center of gravity is a very distinct planning concept within the government and the military for understanding uh, nations that are regarded as a potential enemy. Because in doing planning, there's always the uh, important concept of contingency, what might happen. So we have to be prepared for what might happen. And in, in doing so, we have to kind of try to consider what center of gravity is for that particular country or whatever. So when we're talking about North Korea, as he mentioned, the OGD is the center of gravity of North Korea. It's not something that um, our government and military grasp uh, very well, but it is absolutely the center. The, the chief of the general staff um, of, the, of the North Korean military, um, he cannot wield the military in any way that he particularly wants to. He has political officers on his left shoulder and a military security commander on his right shoulder, um, and they all ultimately report up through the OGD to, to the supreme leader. And, and so that, that's a method of control. That's why it's the center of gravity. And so in doing so, within the, within the report, it covers uh, how that center of gravity has its tentacles out institutionally, geographically. And the importance of that is... Within any planning, there are what, uh, in the government and the military, there, there are what we call annexes that cover specific <laughs> areas that uh, our government and military need to be prepared for. And those, those annexes cover anything, whether it might be intelligence, all the way out to things like civil affairs and psychological operations. There's a whole list of them, not to mention the operations. There is something about the OGD that is highly applicable. And by reading the report, it's not difficult if you have training in this, and, and Dave and Lieutenant General Ayers have great training in the concept of making plans. Each of these annexes could be improved by taking the concepts that are discussed in this book about how the OGD controls, whether it be civil affairs, how, how are the people controlled, whether psychological operations, what is the propaganda that... Um, that the OGD controls through the propaganda and agitation department. How is that effectively used? And so the annex, our government and military annex and our allies would use this information in order to counter the objectives and themes and messages that come out of that particular North Korean side. So um, there's something in, in the OGD that is applicable to all of these annexes. Um, and so for our policy planners and uh, uh, and military planners, it's important to see, you know, beyond just what is the military order of battle, what are the capabilities, what is their readiness, which is usually the focus of what most planning does. We have to look beyond that in terms of how are those things controlled specifically within within the target environment. Um, and so I would say that that uh, the policy planners and the military planners, uh, contingency planners, all need to understand how this control within North Korea applies to them. Um, for the future, um, in order to look uh, through future contingencies, and there are, there are very many of them, as David has described, um, what would the OGD be doing 
within those contingencies. An example would be an assassination of the supreme leader. Who's going to take over uh, next for to be the supreme leader? I was fortunate enough to be a, a um, one of the first Americans to, to uh, do a debriefing of Huang Zhangyop, who to date has still been the highest ranking defector from North Korea. And uh, um, the, uh, in, in his writings, he states that um, if something happens, the OGD will now you know, determine who the next person is going to be, and they will bring that person along until they can uh, ultimately control uh, as, as a supreme leader. The OGD is going to be making that decision. And why? Because if they don't, then they're giving power to some other institution within within the uh, uh, within the state, within the military, um, and within the party, and then that's just not going to happen. It's, um, it's like trying to it's like trying to take out the veins of a human body and just in, without disturbing the rest of the body. That's just impossible. To go into the other contingencies, it's going to be similar, but uh, you can't remove OGD from the process. Even if you even if there's a war. And everybody thinks that there's a possibility, you know, even it might be small, it might be a little bit bigger, whatever, in terms of our U.S. dealings with North Korea, Iraq, South Korea dealings with North Korea. Um, even even if there's a war and our forces were uh, engaged with their forces, you know, there are people that are trying to escape, and so those people are going to be controlled into a what we call a displaced persons camp. But the OGD is going to be sending, just like they did in the Korean War, they're going to be sending people into those camps to control those people, to control those displaced North Koreans to resist anything that, 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 that the Allied forces have to do with them. Um, so um, there's a, the OGD has a role for this. They have an expert, uh, political expert, uh, within uh, every institution and every geographical determination. It's important to say this, even though um, they, there are no nuclear scientists in the OGD, there are no missile scientists in the OGD, um, there are no uh, you know, economic experts in the OGD. The OGD is out there to control those people, not to provide expertise. And that's how they control the decision making. Um, and this is probably the most important part of understanding the effectiveness of the OGD. The guidance comes from the supreme leader, we want to do X, i.e. we want to make nuclear weapons. So that guidance goes down through the OGD to the representatives in the weapons, uh, industry, excuse me, the munition, munitions industry department and down to the nuclear sciences. This is the way it's going to be. The OGD doesn't control the, the quantum physics thoughts of a nuclear scientist. It controls his political life. And if he doesn't conform, he could end up on a pig farm because he didn't do what the guidance told him to do. That has happened. But that process happened. Regardless of whether it's nuclear scientist or the guy that's running the agricultural farms all in Huanghe province, their breadbasket. That's how they control them. And the decisions, the recommendations that come up from the nuclear scientist or the, the head agricultural guy in Huanghe province, the OGD ensures that it fits the guidance provided by the Supreme Leader. If not, that person's in trouble uh, for not following the guidance. And then as it goes up, then Kim Jong, the Supreme Leader, makes a decision whether to, um, to say yay, nay, or, or redo it. Um, and so 
that process needs to be understood by all of our planners in terms of, of uh, whatever the contingency might be. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.